This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. This morning's scripture reading is all of 1 Samuel chapter 10. It begins on page 232 in the Bibles in your rows and is also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. 1 Samuel 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today... You will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. 
And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Katie, for reading that long long chapter for us. Good morning, New City. My name is Ryan. I'm one of your pastors here. Good to see everybody here this morning. We have been going through Samuel's story from the first half of 1 Samuel in the last six to seven weeks. Last week, we went through chapter 8, where Samuel warned people about demanding a king, just like all the nations around them. And so today, we turn our attention just a little bit away from Samuel, and we look at Saul, Israel's first king, the king that the people long for. Now, we only read through chapter 10 here this morning, but we'll be covering chapters 9 to 11. So I highly recommend you go home later and read through all three of the chapters, unless you are following the, the Mexican Bible reading plan, which actually took you through this, these three chapters this week. The title of this sermon is called Visible King and Invisible God. Like many situations in life or many organizations, there is the visible leader, the visible figurehead, then there's someone behind the scene calling the shots. And my wife was teaching our son how to play chess this week, and this is what it says on the instructions. The king is the most important piece on the chessboard, but the queen is the most powerful. And all the Mary sisters here say, Amen. You have the Wizard of Oz, who has the reputation of being powerful, but it's actually Glinda who has the real magic. You have the president of a corporation or, you know, a manager, but the CEO or the board is the one that calls the shots. And probably the most obvious example is the British monarchs. They have all the pomps and circumstances of royalty, but Parliament actually has the real power. When we come to these three chapters in Samuel, the Israelites have gotten what they asked for. They got a visible king who can lead them and fight for them. But there's an invisible God who silently works behind the scenes. So first, let's look at this visible king. For the first time in our story, we introduce to Saul. He has the best 
introduction out of almost anyone in the Bible. First Samuel chapter nine, verse one says, "There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul." So immediately we learn that Saul comes from a wealthy family. The Hebrew actually describes Saul's dad as a man with mighty wealth, kind of like Bruce Wayne. Then the Bible adds that Saul, like me, is a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And not only that, he has the good looks; he has the stature. The description goes on to say, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was—he has the appearance of a great king, right? Wealthy, handsome, tall, a natural-looking leader. He's the change you can believe in, like some say about one of our young, handsome presidents. Now, not only that, he has the looks; he has the affirmation from God, Samuel, and the people. We see three different episodes that affirm Saul's kingship in these three chapters. First, there was a private anointing. In chapter nine, Saul left his father's house to look for some lost donkeys, which he was never able to find. But in the process, Saul meets Samuel for the first time, and Samuel privately anointed him as prince over God's people, Israel. Now you got to know the word prince here is not just a royal title like what we call Prince William or Prince Henry. The word actually means leader, ruler, commander. It conveys real power and responsibility. And this private anointing is affirmed by God. The day before, God told Samuel, "I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines." For I've seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And as Saul leaves Samuel, God's spirit rushes upon Saul, and he begins to prophesy. One our passage says God gave him another heart. He is a changed man. God is obviously with him. And on top of this, Paul Saul reacted quite well. Now, when Samuel told Saul he was about to become king, Saul said, "Am I not a Benjaminite?" From the least of the tribes of Israel, is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? No, who am I to be king? No, he has quite a bit of self-awareness and humility. And then in chapter ten, the chapter we read this morning, there's a more public affirmation. And Samuel calls all the people of Israel together, and Saul was chosen by lot to be king. And again, there's God's affirmation, right? The lot fell on Saul, and Saul reacted humbly. Maybe even a little bit timid. And when he was picked, they couldn't find him. He was hiding behind the baggage. And when they found him, he was taller than everyone by a head. And then some people doubted his leadership, but Saul held his peace. And actually, a similar episode happened in American history. You know, when the Continental Congress was meeting and they appointed George Washington to be commander in chief of the army. Washington ostensibly left the room because he didn't feel like he was up to the task. And do you know why? What's one reason that Washington was chosen? He was tall. He looks like a natural leader. So last episode in chapter 11, Israel was under threat. A terrible tyrant from the Ammonites was threatening to gouge out people's eyes. 
And God's spirit rushed upon Saul, and he united the people together, and he gave them a brilliant military victory. And again, there's God's affirmation. The spirit rushed upon Saul just like it did to all the judges, and God gave him the victory. And Saul responded quite well. He didn't use his victory to vanquish his, his political enemies. He was forgiving and gracious. And that's where our story ends. People renewed the kingdom and had a great coronation ceremony. And Saul was affirmed as king three times, each time more and more public. And each time God was with him and Saul responded humbly. If there's anything negative about Saul here, he's actually kind of a bit timid, even clueless. He couldn't even find his own donkeys. But that's certainly not the power-hungry king that Samuel was warning people about. It seems like in Saul, the Israelites got what they were looking for. They got a visible king who looked apart. He even defeated the king from other nations. That's exactly what the Israelites hoped for in the king. They wanted a king who could beat up other kings. The kingdom seemed to be off to a great start, except the warning that Samuel gave to the people in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. There are many famous stories like Oedipus Rex or Star Wars or Harry Potter. Things often look great for a while. Except that in the beginning of the story, the narrator would drop a prophecy or omen that predicted some kind of downfall. The omen hangs over the whole story and creates a tension that no matter how things look, we know things will end up badly. Perhaps the best Connection is a line from one of the characters in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight series. Now he said at the beginning of the movie, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. That was the question that hangs over Batman's fate in the movie. Will he live long enough to turn into a villain? And that's the question that lingers over Saul's fate here. Will he turn into a villain? And everything has the appearance of success in this story, but there's also the uneasy feeling that they're just on the precipice of failure. Things are not always what it seems, and the metrics we typically use to measure success may be wrong. Now, some things look good, but they're not good at all. Now, last week, I got my family a tub of ice cream from Graders. Now, because Abigail, my wife, is lactose intolerant, I being a sensitive husband, I got her vegan ice cream. All right, I apologize if you like vegan ice cream. But I opened the lid, it looks amazing, right? You know, perfect indulgence. Then I had my first bite. It was revolting. <laughs> it's like people use cough syrup and turn it into ice cream. You know, idolatry looks great, but they're bad for you. Eve saw the forbidden fruit, and the Bible says it was a delight to the eyes, but it was ultimately bad for her and for us. Some things look good, but they're not good at all. Or more importantly to us, some things look good in the beginning, then they change. That seems like what happened to Saul here. I think many of you have been following the podcast from Christianity Today about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's uh, highly recommended. It's a long study about what happened to Mark Driscoll 
and the Mars Hill Church in Seattle, and it dives into all the trends in the soil that make Mark Driscoll who he became. When we look back in his story right now, we may ask, you know, why in the world would people tolerate that kind of pastor? But like many other pastors in the church, it didn't start out that way. The Paul Tripp is a pastor and a counselor in Philadelphia. He wrote this in a book about church leadership. You know the leader that changed because it had, if he had been in the early days who he is now, he would never have been called, hired, or appointed to this leadership position. The change did not occur overnight. They happened in bits and pieces over a period of years. Now, very few bad leaders started out as a tyrant. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been appointed in the first place. But people change. You would change, and I would change. And I pray that we'll have the courage to speak to each other's lives when we see each other heading down the wrong direction. Some things look good, but they're not good at all. Some things look good now, but they can change. What we see may not be how things will always be. And that makes the world seem like such an unsafe place to be, right? If anything could go south, why bother? Is there anything, is there anything that's truly good or unchanging? Well, before I get into that, I want to take a brief sidebar and look at Samuel, just a little bit. See, Samuel is really a fascinating figure here. We knew from last week that he was not happy about people's requests. He knew things would end up badly. He even warns people again in this chapter, in chapter 10, about rejecting God as their king. But at the same time, he befriends Saul and was kind to him. And Samuel is by now an elder statesman. He uses influence to prepare Saul and groom him to be king. And when Saul finally was rejected by God, the Bible says Samuel grieved over Saul. He truly loved Saul as a friend, even though he knew from the very beginning this was a bad idea. See, if it were me, I would sit back and wait for Saul's downfall, and I would say, I told you so. You idiots got what you deserve. Now, maybe none of you are as mean as I am, but who doesn't like to say, I told you so? So I want to just remind you, and to remind myself, be gracious. Be gracious. Don't be quick to write people off Leave space for God to do his work. Now, even Jesus was kind to Judas. Even though he knew that Judas would eventually betray him, up to the last moment, Jesus broke bread with Judas and washed his feet. If you're truly serious about loving your neighbor and sharing the gospel with them, then the last thing they need is your contempt and judgment. Now, don't be so quick to cancel people. And do you know who's really good at being gracious to people? Josh, Pastor Josh. Now, there are some people that I would be tempted to write off or ignore a long time ago, but Josh is so patient. And there are some times that I wish he would come down hard on some people's mistakes, and he's still so gracious and kind to them, it drives me nuts. <laughs> Until one day, I become the one who messed up, and I became the person he should come down hard on. And then I'm grateful that he's so gracious and gentle. We always want justice for our enemies and mercy for ourselves. But if God treated us the way we treat other people, 
where will we end up? And only God can do that. I think Samuel knew this. He was gracious to Saul because he knows a gracious God. So lastly, let's look at God who is invisible. And what can we say about God here? The main thing is just simply, God is still here. He is still here. Now, after people have rejected him as king, after people ignored his warnings, God is still here. And one reason God gave them Saul is because he wanted to deliver his people from their enemies. He has seen his people because their cry has come to him. He works through Samuel to give them a king. He empowers Saul to defeat his enemies. Saul is the visible king who got all the victories and the glories, but God is the one behind the curtain who empowered him and gave him the victory. But God is still here after his people rejected him, and God is still here for you, even though you have rejected him. God has never stopped his work to redeem sinners, no matter how many times we have turned our backs from him. I remember hearing a story, I don't remember where I heard it, maybe it's like a Tim Keller sermon, it's about a man who, have, who was having an affair with a woman. And sometimes they would come to his house to, you know, watch Netflix and chill. And every time before the woman comes over, he would go around the house and tipped over all the picture of his wife because he can't stand, he can't be with this woman while his wife is looking, even though they're just pictures. And that's often what we do, right? We, we have to turn from God's presence in order to carry on with what's most immediate and visible in front of us. It's not that God has left us, but we've gotten so good at pretending that he's not there. And that's why daily Bible reading and prayers are so important because they're daily reminders of God's presence. It's hard to pretend that God is not here when you're interacting with him daily. And perhaps there was a time in Western civilization's history when the world felt more enchanted. And by that I meant the spiritual forces were more recognizable and God's presence was, a, was acknowledged as reality in people's lives. And God's presence was like the sun. It's, it's above everyone. It's a, presence, it's a present reality that everyone recognizes. But in our secular age, we operate within what philosopher Charles Taylor called the imminent frame which means we only acknowledge the observable, the material things that we see in our lives, and God's presence is either denied or ignored. Now you look up in the sky, the sun is still there, but it's like we have built a giant dome over our head, and all we can see is darkness. We operate as if the sun does not exist. We may still claim to believe the sun is out there, but it has no effect in our lives. But there are still times when the sunlight of God's presence breaks through the cracks of our dome, our imminent frame. Moments like beauty, cries for justice, lament for the world in a week like this. Maybe during a church service while you, where you're invited to think about the deeper question of life. But there are still times when the sunlight of God's presence breaks through. You know, a few weeks ago, I met with a group of college friends on Zoom to share stories and to commemorate our friend who passed away in June. 
And I've now seen some of these friends for several years, and many of them who went around the screen to share some life updates, many of them, some of them believers and non-believers, and they said something like, I've been thinking a lot about life and the meaning of life after Javier passed away. Because these are the moments when people are asking deep questions. When one of your peers passed away, is there something out there? I was joking with some guys in my men's group that these days, other than church service on Sunday mornings, the places you hear the gospel the most are weddings and funerals. Your goal is to build deep enough relationship with people so that they will come to your weddings and your funerals. Now you just have to make sure you die before they do, right? Now where do you see God working in your life? And how is God lingering around your life? How is the sunlight breaking through the cracks of your dome? Because even though we may not feel it, God's not just idly hanging out there. He's working with your life. He's taking a sledgehammer and pounding on your dome, creating cracks until you finally learn to see the light. If God feels invisible to you, maybe because you've been hurt of the solution by the sins of other people, Maybe you're like the Israelites. You've turned away from God and you rejected him too many times. And you think there's no chance, no chance God will still be here for you. He is. God is still here. God's like one of your loyal friends. You all know someone like that. They're always the last people to leave a party. They tend to overstay their welcome. They're a bit awkward and you're a little bit embarrassed to introduce them to your other friends. But when you need a hand, they're always the first ones there. If you need help moving, they're the first ones to show up. If you messed up, they're the first ones to forgive. That's what God's like. It's a loyal friend who won't leave you alone. God is still there. And when he's not, even when he's not always visible, but just in case, just in case, we still have doubts whether God is still there for you, God came and became visible. He walked on earth and proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom, but he did not look like a king. He was not wealthy by any means. He was born in the home of a humble carpenter. He was not handsome. The prophet Isaiah says he had no form of, or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't come from a big, sophisticated city came from a small village. He was not someone that would naturally command an army. He was gentle and lowly. There was one time when people welcomed him as king, but the same crowd would turn to crucify him a week later. Unlike Saul, Jesus is the king who did not look the part, but he's the best king that we can have because he's the king that we need. He's the king who came to search for us, not to conquer our bodies, but to conquer our hearts. He's the king who died for us, the king who forgave us. That's the only way that God could show mercy on people who would turn away from him. The Paul writes in Romans 5, God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the king who breaks through our dome and shines in our darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. 
No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is who God is to you. Would you follow him? As many of you know, we have a four-year-old son named Edmund. He is consistently measured at 99th percentile in height. Our doctors projected him to be six foot four when he grows up. He certainly didn't get the height from me. But what he did get from me is his natural, good, handsome looks. <laughs> he has fairly light skin too, so he could pass as a white man if he wanted to. He may grow up to be someone that has all the visible quality of a strong leader. But that's not what we hope he would be known for. That's our prayer that he would be known as someone who is humble and gentle, someone who would use his power to defend others in need, someone who will identify with the ugly and come for the weak, someone who will be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. We pray that he would grow up to be someone who could reflect our need for Jesus and what Jesus is like for us. May that be true for all of you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for reminding us of who you are and as the king who was humble and lowly, who came to die for us, that what you look like is not what the world seems as successful, but that's what successful look like in your kingdom. And we pray that you would turn us into people like that, people who may identify with the weak, who may not seek the good and the powerful things, the things that look good in the world, but to seek you, to know, to acknowledge that we need you, we need your salvation because we're humble sinners, that we need you to help us and save us. So we pray that you remind us of that reality every day. Pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.